This is an ABC podcast. No, ia e Māori, Manuela Tayao, and good morning. I'm Aggie Dubol, your host, and this is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. We'd like to acknowledge that Pacific Beat comes to you from the lands of the Bunurong and Rwandri peoples of the Kulin Nation. What can you expect on the show this morning? Well, is Papua New Guinea ready for a new Prime Minister? And former Fiji Prime Minister Baini Marama spends another night in custody. And businesses in Port Moresby are still awaiting government assistance after the January riots. Stay tuned for more on these stories. I'm Aggie Dubol and this is Pacific Beat. Firstly, we start in Papua New Guinea, where opposition MPs have delivered to the Speaker of Parliament a notice for a motion of no confidence against Prime Minister James Marape. It comes after weeks of speculation and the defection of a number of government MPs, among them the Governor of East Sepik Province, Alan Bird. Mr Bird has now been selected as the alternate Prime Minister, should a motion of no confidence be first tabled and is successfully voted on. So joining us this morning, live from Port Moresby, is Governor Alan Bird. With that, I say welcome to the show. Thank you, Aggie. Good morning, Governor. Good morning, everyone. Yeah, thank you for joining us. Uh, Governor, what was your reasons for accepting the nomination from really the opposition to challenge Prime Minister James Marape? Well, the main reason was that i've i've been vocal on uh, on a number of issues and uh, particularly on i guess the method about which we have been approaching a lot of these issues and um and my disagreement on on how not getting the results that we think we should um and therefore i guess sitting amongst my colleagues they said look uh you're the best person to do that. And uh, not only that, I think um, if you saw from the response from the public uh, yesterday, which surprised me also, um, the assessment from my colleagues was that, look, we, we need someone that's going to restore the public confidence in in government generally uh, and, and in the country. And my colleagues felt that I was that person given, I guess, my work in the public space in the past six years, my commitment to transparency and good government, uh, the work I've done on, I guess, uh, you know, anti-corruption and the lead I've taken in some of that work. And I think it's just that I think uh, my colleagues feel that we need to restore public confidence and they felt that I was the person for it. And like I said, um, I was quite surprised because you, you don't normally think of yourself in that vein. Uh, but seeing the response from the public yesterday, uh, surprisingly for me anyway, um, uh, the public is quite relieved that uh, my name came forward. And I'm very humbled by it and very, uh, I guess, honored that my colleagues would think that way of me. and. Um, I do have some practical ideas on on how to resolve our issues, our deep-seated issues, you know, both economic and social. And yes, before we get to that, Governor, I do have to ask, though, was your departure from the government possibly subject to you being offered the PM nominee 
post? Because, I mean, was that why you left the government, if you don't mind reminding us why? No, not at all. Uh, I've been disagreeing with government on a number of matters over a number of years, actually. And about eight months ago, I thought, I'll... I might as well go to opposition because when you're in government, and and as you know, our government has been making a lot of bad decisions. And I've been one of those MPs in government, uh, myself, Governor Chufa, uh, you know, uh, Minister Kramer, who's who's now been uh, uh, sort of thrown out of uh, uh, of parliament, uh, you know, Dr. Lino. So there's a group of MPs, Karenga uh, Kua, who's also left, um, who've been sort of vocal against bad decisions of government within government. And, you know, after a while, it got a bit tiring. And about eight months ago, I was going to leave. Um, I told government caucus, look, I'm going to the opposition. And uh, the deputy prime minister, who's a good friend of mine, Honorable John Rosso, and uh, the governor of NCD, uh, Governor Parko, they they had a word with me and said, "Look, stay back and let's keep trying to change things from the inside." Um, so I hung around for another eight months, and you know, my people also, the people of East Sipic, uh my electorate obviously is the electorate of uh, you know the founding father, Sir Michael Samare. So my my electorate. Uh, has been agitating for me to leave government for a while. You know, given all of the corruption allegations around the prime minister and, and all of those sorts of matters, um, uh, they've been saying, look, you got to leave government. You know, you can't be still in government and uh, have your own reputation uh, tarnished. And of course, you know, in, in so doing, you know, you're ruining our good name as Sipic people and the Sipic electors. So there was also that pressure. And so I, I, I had no idea I would be a nominee for, for prime minister, to be honest with you. And I, I was quite unprepared. I rolled up to the meeting yesterday, uh, you know, not kind of dressed for the occasion, uh, but very casual. <laughs> And uh, when the discussion came up, I actually, um, well, first of all, I I didn't want to be a nominee, but then given some of the pleadings from some of the MPs, I conceded, but even more so, um, I actually asked them if we could delay it for a week or a month or, or something to sort of allow for more government MPs to come along and, you know, uh, other senior leaders could throw their hat in the ring. Um, but like I said, uh, some of our senior leaders, um, uh, including uh, the Honorable Peter O'Neill, former Prime Minister, and uh, particularly Sir Pukatemu, uh, also another senior MP and, and former uh, Deputy Prime Minister, said, look, you know, our people want to see us doing something and they want us to demonstrate that we are serious about um, changing the government and we need to put forward a credible candidate and uh, we need to take that decision now so up until i guess one o'clock yesterday um 
I had no political party, and I guess most people know me as a bit of a political maverick. Um, in my mind, and uh, you know, many times sort of uh, going against the government I was a part of uh, on a lot of issues that I disagreed with. Um, I, I'm an independent. I don't have a political party, and uh, um, yeah, by one thirty, I was uh, on a nomination paper. <laughs> being taken to the speak so and that's how it happened yeah there's been uh, obviously quite a few uh you know shining words on your uh, ethics and and what you stand for but you know right now governor the opposition has around 23 MPs uh thinking you'll need at least double that number to unseat the current prime minister are you then confident now that you could get that support and how Look, everyone's talking. Um, there's a lot of dissatisfied government MPs. Um, obviously, our kind of politics is such that a lot of MPs are promised a lot of things by the government. And, you know, you've seen some of the allegations around the fundraising uh, activities of the government. So, obviously, they've got a pretty big war chest, which, you know, compared to us, we don't have one. So, we're standing on principle here. But... I mean, there's another pressure as well. And that pressure is going to come from the people of Papua New Guinea who are, you know, battling uh, cost of living pressures, increasing law and order issues, uh, you know, significant unemployment. Um, um, so these are the sorts of pressures that I think are going to be brought to members of the parliament over the next, you know, week or so. And I like to think that there are many, um, you know, well, obviously we're having active discussions um, with a lot of government MPs. And it's up to them to, I guess, search their conscience and, and make a decision. That, you know, people like myself, I'm, I'm committed to stay in opposition up until 2027 and, and to, to hold the government accountable. So I'm not going anywhere. And. You know, we've all got friends and relations uh, with um, those who are in government. And I guess uh, everyone has to sort of answer the question of, look, am I happy coming to Waigani and begging for funds to take back and, and try and help my people? Or do we want a, a better system that uh, doesn't have members of parliament uh, come to Waigani crawling on their hands and knees uh, looking for funds, which is something we've all been doing for more than 30 years. And I guess that's what I'm proposing, to, to overhaul the entire system and to move us quickly towards a federal-type system that Australia has. So that's what I've been advocating for a while. And so it's up to them to decide, you know, um, whether they all want a master in Waigani or whether the entire country wants to be free to develop and move in a new direction. All right, you're listening to Pacific mm. Beat, and all eyes are on the political situation in Papua New Guinea, where a motion of no confidence against Prime Minister James Marape is looming. On the show this morning with me is the man challenging the Prime Minister for the top job, Alan Bird. Oh, with that, Governor, of course, a notice for a no-confidence motion has been delivered. So what are the next steps then? Well, the private members committee has to clear the motion. And as you know, 
I used to be a member of the private members committee. I was removed yesterday by the government again, uh, in an, in an effort to maybe thwart, uh, the work of the private members committee. Um, but, uh, we've got a Supreme Court decision on the work of the, uh, private members committee in relation to, uh, the entertainment of motions of no confidence. So we've got lawyers standing by to essentially, uh, take members of the um, private members committee to court should they not entertain the motion. So uh, there's all those sorts of things that are going on. But once that's done, they should simply clear it based on the court decision of some time back, Supreme Court decision, um, and um, take it to the floor. And I guess on our side, uh, we we have the vote and see, and you know if if the members of parliament decide that uh, James Marape continues as prime minister and continues to do the things he's been doing for the last five years, and uh, you know that's something we'll all have to live with and and accept and 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 move on. Governor, what's interesting is you know you were once on the opposite divide of figures like former Prime Minister Peter O'Neill. Of course, now both you're sitting in the opposition together. Were you surprised, though, that he uh, endorsed your candidacy? Very surprised. Um, but, you know, uh, I, I battled uh, Peter O'Neill essentially on the same principles when he was in government. And uh, it's never a personal thing. Uh, and I think. He respects me for that. I, I don't personalize things. I always stick to the issues. And um, I think he's been in opposition long enough now to um, realize that we need a change. Um, and, I, you know, I think, you know, like everyone, he cares for the country. And uh, I was pleasantly surprised by his decision not to nominate yesterday and to sort of allow someone new. And he, he actually said, look, Um, so that's, that's, that's what happened. Uh, he, he was very gracious. In fact, there were in fact, several leaders yesterday, including, uh, the former prime minister and one of our founding fathers, Sir Julius Chan. He was also very gracious. Uh, the honorable, uh, Pukatemu, uh, also uh, Belden Nama, who were both former deputy prime ministers. So, and of course, uh, Karenga Kua, a very senior, learned, uh, member of parliament as well. Um, so, um, yeah, to be put placed ahead of all those people and to be sort of granted their confidence, uh, it's quite humbling, in fact. But even if we were to think that if, if Prime Minister uh, James Marape stays in power, he obviously had a recent visit there to, you know, Australia's parliament. He gave a historic speech as the first Pacific leader to do so. Do you yourself, Governor, think that this would help keep him in power? Well, I mean, we do value our relationship with Australia. And, you know, I'm sure Prime Minister Marape was genuine. But, you know, at the same time, he's trusted the uh, Foreign Affairs Minister is is quoting China directly as well. So, 
I'm not sure if he's still playing off one uh, regional power against another in terms of his foreign policy. Uh, um, uh, what's the word? His foreign policy outlook. Um, Australia is a very dear friend, and you know we we're all um, grateful that that opportunity was given to Papua New Guinea. But a lot of us felt that uh, the Honourable James Marampe has a lot of questions surrounding his character, uh, you know, in relation to, you know, the Paraka payments. I mean, that shocked me. That was one of the reasons I walked out was the Paraka payments. And of course, you know, the payments uh, going out to a lot of his uh, crony companies, uh, including one that I think he co-owns. Um, so significant government payments have been channeled in that manner and he's implicated. Uh, so these are the sorts of issues we have. Uh, and, you know, nothing against Australia. And, and of course, you know, there are people who would say, look, it's a great honor bestowed upon Papua New Guinea and, and we, we, uh, we acknowledge that. Um, but unfortunately, I think uh, he, it was the wrong man uh, delivering the uh, speech on behalf of the country. Um, but he just happens to be prime minister at the time. I mean, depending on how these allegations go in terms of these payments and, you know, for one particular one, I think Paul Paraka, that's a total of almost 900 million Kina in payments. And Paul Paraka's convicted and in jail. And some of the documents used to convict uh, Paul Paraka uh, and our court exhibits were signed off by Prime Minister Marape in his former capacity as the finance minister. And those are court exhibits. So, I mean, you can draw your own conclusions. Um, and like I said, they were just revealed uh, about a week before I attended my resignation. And that was really what precipitated my leaving. Yeah. Very serious allegations um, of significant impropriety of, of uh, public funds. Mm. Yes, which I'm sure are absolutely being looked into at the moment. But, Governor, that leads me to this next question, and there's two parts to it, of course, is, is PNG ready for change? And how would you run PNG differently if you are successful in ousting James Marape? Well, first of all, uh, look, you just have to look at the social uh, commentary yesterday after the announcement was made. I mean, uh, we have a very smart young MP by the name of uh, Honorable Keith Idugu, who's a first-termer. He did a post uh, online about the nomination. Uh, and uh, within 20 minutes, he had uh, 300 responses and, uh, you know, like something like 35 shares. And, and he showed it to me and he said, bro, um, Look at this. This is how Papua New Guinea is responding. He says, I never get uh, more than 100 likes on my posts and, and not in 20 minutes. And that's one indicator that I guess the, the, country's, uh, the country wants change. Um, what I would do, uh, look, as I said, the, the Australian model is there. I don't know why we, I think we adopted that model uh, post independence and then we kind of changed again in 1995 
We currently have a centralized model of government where all power is centralized in Wagani, which gives the prime minister considerable power because he can then, any prime minister can use the funds concentrated in Wagani um, to basically hold on to power. My argument has been for a number of years that power needs to be shared and that every province has a unique identity, unique uh, uh, challenges, and they need to be given the freedom to resolve their challenges. And they can't be brought uh, to Port Moresby and, you know, all of this funding weaponized uh, to keep a single person in power. I mean, we can still have a prime minister in Port Moresby dealing with, you know, national and international issues, but the solution to things like law and order, healthcare, education, um, you know, infrastructure access, uh, opportunity uh, creation for our people would be better achieved if we changed the way inter-government financing works. I've been a governor for six years now, and I'm acutely aware of the problems. Um, I did some work for a former uh, Minister for Planning, the Honourable Charles Abel, in that capacity uh, almost 10 years ago now. And we proposed the adoption of the Australian model, uh, a model similar to Australian, and uh, it hasn't been done. So I'm I'm pretty convinced that, like for example, uh, currently less fifteen percent of Papua New Guinea's funding goes to the provinces, and we have twenty two provinces. The majority of the funding is kept in Waigani, eighty five percent of it. And I'm proposing that a larger percentage of the funding uh, gets pushed down to the provinces um, and that all the provinces be given uh, the freedom to spend those funds on their challenges and, of course, strengthening all of our governance mechanisms uh, in the central government. For example, over the last 20 years, the Auditor General's office has been consistently weakened. The Fraud Squad Office has been consistently weakened. The Ombudsman Commission has been consistently weakened. My suggestion is to increase the inspections. Uh, look, I've been governor for six years. There hasn't been a single national government inspection of the performance of my province. I had to ask the Australian government to come in and audit my province. And I, I did that because I, we were performing. And, I, you know, I'm a big believer in transparency and good government and an advocate for that. So I see a clear pathway. Um, if you want things to change, any business will empower the business units and increase oversight. We have not done that in 30 or 40 years. There's basically very little oversight and there's very little funding directly to the coalface of where the uh, Less than 15% of funding of the country goes to the 22 provinces. So that gives a lot of financial power to whoever's in charge. And I'm saying that should change. There should be a true sharing of power around Papua New Guinea. 
and the prime minister can then focus on national issues and can focus on international issues. He can't be doing both, which is what has been happening for the past 30 years. That's what I'm proposing. Well, Governor, we know that it's going to be a hard task ahead, uh, but we will be waiting to see the outcome and, of course, see the change that PNG is needing. Uh, But we appreciate your time this morning. Uh, Look, nothing is ever easy. Nothing good is ever easy. That doesn't mean we shouldn't try and do it. So Mm. I guess we're on the path and we'll see. Absolutely. Other colleague leaders say over the next uh, couple of weeks. Thank you very much. I appreciate uh, you calling me up this morning. No worries. That, of course, is East SEPIC Governor Alan Bird joining us this morning on Pacific Beat. For decades, the U.S. and Micronesian countries of Palau, Marshall Islands and the Federated States of Micronesia have been bound together under what's known as the Compacts of Free Association, or COFA. The agreements have guaranteed billions of dollars in grants for the Micronesian states, and in return, the U.S. military have access to their strategically important islands and waters. But the recent failure by the U.S. Congress to approve $1.6 billion in grants is threatening to undermine the alliance. One former North Pacific leader says some Micronesians are fielding offers of support from elsewhere, as Carl Evans reports. The Compact of Free Associations Pact has long been a win-win for the US and the Micronesian states of Palau, Marshall Islands and FSM. It has provided billions of dollars in grants to Micronesia and in return gives the US military a prime strategic foothold in the Pacific. But now, at a time of increased competition between the US and China in the region, the funds are locked behind bureaucratic tape. And one former Marshallese leader worries about what it all means. Well, I I can say unequivocally that even if the compact funding did go through, there'd still be a threat. So I, I think there's a lot to lose here for the United States. And the idea that the politics as they are in the U.S. right now are just so so unpredictable and they're so inefficient now at producing any kind of legislation. Uh, I just really fear for this area of the world when, you, you know, you see these kind of delays and it's just pretty upsetting for a lot of people here. Jack Nadenthor is the former Marshall Islands Health Secretary. He says his country is already being forced to survive on its own resources and the delay of funding is placing pressure on government services. But that's not all. He says it could shake the diplomatic balance of the region also. And when you have what's been going on in this region with China, where they've just, uh, you know, Nauru just went over to uh, the Chinese and, and used to be ally and used to be recognizing Taiwan, uh, the, the, the feel for Taiwan is very strong here in the Marshall Islands. We're very strong allies of Taiwan. But that could change. It's it's not like you have to convince all 42,000 people here not to make that kind of change. All you need to really do is convince 17 people um, because there's 33 people in the parliament. And that's a little bit scary to some of us. Niedenthal says that process may have already started. I think there are already Micronesians who are listening. And I think the U.S. has to take this a lot more seriously than they are. Palau's president, Sarangal Whips Jr., highlighted similar concerns on Monday. While he told Pacific Beat his administration would never switch diplomatic ties from Taiwan to China, 
the risk was there if another leader were to be elected. Uh, just in the last election, when, the, when I was running, there was at least uh, two of the four candidates that were campaigning on the fact that we should reevaluate our relationship with Taiwan and look at other economic opportunities. The majority of the Palauan people voiced their opinion in the last election. I believe that's where Palau stands. But of course, when you're faced with economic challenges that you, you, you run out of options, that you always run those risks. Despite the dire warnings, experts aren't optimistic the US will be able to push the legislation through soon. Graeme Smith from the Australian National University's Department of Pacific Affairs says there's simply too much dysfunction within its Congress. It's, it's, it's ironic because if you um, held up both the Republicans and the Democrats and said, you know, what do you think about this? They would all say, oh, yes, you know, this ought to be passed and we should renew these agreements. Uh, and yet um, they didn't manage to attach it to the defence bill. They, they didn't even bother trying to attach it to the immigration bill, which is going to fail anyway. Um, so, yeah, it's really about congressional dysfunction, um, which, depending on how the uh, next elections go, um, is only going to get worse. However, Smith says there's limitations on what China can offer Micronesian states. Under current deals with the US, Micronesian citizens get various privileges in relation to access and migration to the US. He says any win the Chinese could score is by having the compact association agreements torn up. He says that alone should be a huge incentive to ensure US Congress actions the compact association funding. And soon. Anything is possible um, because, you know, it is in the US interest to maintain exclusive access to the uh, maritime waters in this region. But it's equally in China's interest to, uh, to at least muddy the waters and, and make it less clear that the US has the right to, to, uh, to operate in these waters. Um, and if it can do so relatively cheaply, then it will, will, will certainly do so. And the reason they're crucial, it's Taiwan. So if China does, under Xi Jinping, follow through and try to take Taiwan by force, then the most likely scenario is that were the US to come to Taiwan's aid, which would depend who was in the White House, they would have to sail through the Northern Pacific to, to do so. Um, and so that's why those waters are so crucial. It's, it's, it's really, in the end, um, not so much about Taiwan recognition, but about the physical defence of Taiwan. And that's Graham Smith from the Australian National University's Department of Pacific Affairs, ending that report from Carl Evans. Stay in Fiji, where Fiji's former military dictator and Prime Minister, Frank Bainimarama, has spent another night in police custody for the second time in a week after being charged with a fresh count of abuse of office. Spending last night in custody with him was the former police commissioner, Sitiveni Kiliho. The pair have been charged with offences relating to the alleged unlawful termination of two police officers in 2021. So, joining us with the latest details is our Fiji reporter there, Lide Mavono, of that uh, Agnes, we're talking again about almost the same issues. <laughs> Literally, but I'm sure there is more to it. So, gosh, tell us about the charges uh, and what do we know of the circumstances of the men's alleged crimes? 
Look, what was officially um, put out yesterday afternoon after the two had been in ca- police custody, being questioned for several hours, is that, you know, these are um, abuse of office charges. The two are alleged to have um, uh, conspired or rather to have directed um Senior Superintendent of Police, Rusiata Tundrava, who was acting police commissioner at the time, the two are alleged to have directed him to dismiss two officers. Now, what we do understand from sources within the force is that the two officers are said to have um, searched a person uh, who is known to one of the two accused people. And so um, they were directed, uh, the, the police commissioner at the time was directed to terminate them, but he didn't. He put them through a police disciplinary process and gave them a lesser punishment and so it's alleged that he was then directed to terminate them after that and so we will be hearing more about this case in court this morning Agnes. Mm. Can you maybe describe the demeanour of the men throughout yesterday after they arrived for questioning by police though? Uh, well, it's, it was definitely different. I mean, this is round three of, um, you know, these charges. The first one being around this time, just over a year ago, uh, when they, you know, first were arrested for abuse of office charges. And then a week ago was the second round. And so, um, they looked, um, I'm not quite sure what the right word is, but not as powerful as they usually are. Definitely not as cheerful as, uh, you know, their arrests have been. And there's a lot less supporters around now, Agnes. I'm must make note of that. Um, you do see his closest family always around him, but now there's a lot less people within the party. There were no MPs yesterday, as is usually the case when the two are arrested. So uh, not as cheerful, not as powerful. It's it's becoming a bit more serious now, Agnes. Yeah, Lee, look, I mean, it's the second time in a week, of course, that Mr. Bani Maram has been charged uh, with abuse of office. Uh, at least remind us uh, what that charge was related to previously. In the first round of which he was acquitted uh, in, in late September last year, it was to do with um, allegations that he, he stopped the police from investigating financial mismanagement at the University of the South Pacific. Now, the University of the South Pacific is, of course, owned by the Pacific Islands Forum, of which Australia is a member. He was acquitted of those charges. The trial went on for the better part of last year, and um, uh, he was also charged along with his police commissioner at the time, Brigadier General Sitiveni Gilliho. Now, Sitiveni Gilliho continues to hold on to the position and the pay, although he is being suspended since last year's case was brought to court. Now, the Director of Public Prosecution's Office did appeal that conviction and the appeal process is still ongoing. A week ago, however, fresh charges were brought against Mr. Mainamarama again, but this time with Ayasaid Kayum, who was his attorney general at the time. Uh, the two of them uh, did appear in court last week, and so um, we should be seeing them back in court on the 19th of March. Um, today, we're talking about um, the unlawful termination of two um, officers, and this particular case that we will be hearing today is quite well known to the public because um, 
um, the acting police commissioner at the time, SSP Rusiate Tundravu, a well-known high-profile career officer, did retire early. He did resign from the police force amid some suspicious circumstances. And so a lot of that will come to light this week now, Agnes. Uh, and you've already let us know what will happen today, but are you aware, though, Lide, uh the punishment that they may incur if they are to be charged with uh, this recent uh, incident? Yes, Agnes, that depends a lot on um, you know which case, which court the case is being heard in. So part of the process um, that will happen on the 19th of March for the second round of abuse of office charges is that the men take their plea and they also elect the court they would like to be heard in. And so um, if they, uh, uh, well, what is likely to happen is they will choose to be heard in the magistrate's court. And what that means is they, if they're found guilty, they will uh, carry a lesser penalty. So in the magistrate's court, I believe the the highest penalty you can get for abuse of office charges is um, five years in in, in imprisonment. Now, last week's round of charges are to do with um, uh, waiving the tender process for um, construction and engineering services within uh, Fiji's uh, public health infrastructure. Now, for those those charges, the value of those tenders, which are alleged to have been, you know, given uh, um, um, in 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 a in in the wrong way, let's call it that. Um, the value of those tenders is up to a million dollars. So a lot depends on the severity of the case. But as I mentioned at the beginning. It's becoming more serious now. Last week, it's a value of a million dollars worth of government funds. This week, you're talking about the unfair dismissal of uh, civil servants, police officers at that, and leading to the early retirement of a decorated police officer. So um, they could be facing up to five years in jail um, for if they're convicted of these crimes. Last week, the police commission, the the sorry, the former prime minister carried only one count of abuse of office. This week, uh, he got, he has another. So we're looking at pretty serious time if he is found guilty of these charges, Agnes. Yeah, absolutely. And we will keep our eyes and ears on that story. And I appreciate you bringing us uh, the latest in regards to the situation, Lee. Appreciate your time this morning. Malo. No worries. That, of course, is ABC reporter in Fiji, Lee Movono. Up next, it's our news wrap. That's right. Let's head around the region to see what is the latest in headlines. And of course, that is brought to us by our producer, Mackenzie Smith, this morning. Good morning, Mackenzie. Morning, Aki. How's it going? <laughs> Good, thank you. Uh, full on morning, but of course, there's still a lot that's happening around uh, the Pacific. Uh, we head to Tonga. Tonga's parliament has reconvened, but most of the senior cabinet were absent. What has happened there? Yeah, well, important to remember it's the uh, it's the first time Parliament has sat for the year, meaning also the first since uh, the King Tupo the Sixth said he had lost confidence in Prime Minister Hua Kavamaliku uh, as the Minister of His Majesty's Armed Forces and Fikita Utoikamanu as Foreign Affairs Minister. Now, since then, the the acting Prime Minister has responded with his support of the current Cabinet, and there hasn't been any further word from the King since February 2nd. But at Parliament on Monday, Matangi Tonga reports that as well as the Prime Minister being absent, he's in New Zealand for medical treatment, the Foreign Affairs Minister, the Minister for Finance, and 
the Minister for Agriculture, Food and Forestry were also nowhere to be found. Matangi Tonga says there was no reason given in Parliament yesterday for these absences. Mm, thank you for that. Uh, we head to Solomon Island, uh, Solomon Island, sorry, where they're vying for election uh, to soon be able to start campaigning. Is that true? Yeah, so the government has already announced the election date is April 17th, but this hasn't been officially gazetted, meaning uh, those uh, would-be MPs can't start campaigning just yet. Um, But according to the uh, Electoral Commission, um, the Governor-General, David Funagi, is going to formally announce this date on February 20th. Uh, And so that will be followed by an official nomination period and candidates will then be able to campaign up until the day before the election. According to Radio New Zealand, 13 political parties are already registered for the vote. And it's also worth noting that this is the first joint provincial and national elections in Solomon Islands since its independence in 1978. These elections, uh, the national elections, were of course scheduled to occur in March, in May last year, but the Sogavari government delayed the dissolution of parliament by several months, so that's only just now happening. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, finally, we head back to Donga, though, because it's unfortunate. A senior bank official uh, in Donga has been named in a major drug bust. Yeah, two siblings were caught up in this. Uh, with they were, they were found with 15 kilograms of methamphetamine over the weekend. Tavita and his sister, Anna Kolokihakaofisi, appeared at the magistrate's court on Monday after they were they were arrested at their home, according to Matangi Tonga. Tavita was a senior bank official at the National Reserve Bank of Tonga, and most of the meth was actually recovered from his office at the bank. Their bail has been refused, and they'll next appear in court on Friday. And the police commissioner, Shane McLennan, says investigations into the bust are ongoing and police will continue to detect and disrupt drug supply chains in Tonga. Mm, Very unfortunate to hear. We are trying to see if we can get a hold of the police commissioner uh, to speak on that matter. But uh, Mackenzie, thank you very much for bringing our news wrap this morning. No worries. Now, with Indonesian President Joko Widodo's term coming to an end this week, West Papuan independence fighters are better armed, resourced and coordinated than when he took office 10 years ago. That's according to a new report from the Jakarta-based Institute for Policy Analysis of Conflict, which also calls for urgent policy change from a new government. Reporter Mackenzie Smith spoke to lead author Deka Anwar, who says a leading factor was a lack of oversight for government funds. Pretty much billions of money flowed through the Papuans, Papua Highlands, and in many areas where there's not that much uh, supervision from the provincial or the central government. So what happened with that money? Uh, We don't know. But in some areas where there is no conflict, probably end up being in the local elite's pocket. But what happens if this money, like billions of money, goes to the areas where there are OPM operators? And then what happens is that there are some, uh, uh, the village funding money flooded the areas in Papua with cash flows, which improved their purchasing power, 
and in a way that it allows them to buy weapons, more weapons and more ammunition from wayward or rogue security personnel in Indonesia. So if you see pictures of uh, TPNPB or OPM members posing, all of their weapons are from the military or from the police. Where the, uh, we only know the incidents where they attack or steal firearms, but we don't really know how much weapons they got from illegal transactions unless uh, somebody got arrested. So the number of incidents of uh, arrested people, uh, including security personnel who are involved in these illegal firearm transactions, is just the tips of the iceberg. This is how the people who just unfortunately got caught and probably already engaged in uh, the dirty business too long and then they got arrested. But we don't really know how big the firearms, illegal firearms transaction in Papua. So you're saying a, a lot of the funding and intended for the people of Papua has ended up funding arms for the uh, rebel groups? Whether, yeah, whether by donation, extortion or whatever. It can be all motive, but the money is there to be exploited. You point to some successes in your report, um, specifically uh, in Lani Jaya district, what are those and, and how could that provide lessons? The problem in Papua is like if we zoom out, everything is going pretty much a lot worse. But there are a lot of successful cases at the sub-provincial level where the local officials, competent local officials, manage to uh, pretty much to manage the conflict between the security forces and then the OPM members. For example, the former uh, Papua governor, Lucas Enembe, he used to be the district head in Punchak, and he was he was quite successful in maintaining relationship without empowering them. This is the key, right? To, to manage a conflict without empowering or promoting uh, rebel financing. And this is what happened in Lanujaya, and it has happened in in Punchak before, during Lucas Enembe, before he became governor. Prabowo Subianto is predicted to win the election this year. Given his history in the Indonesian military and the allegations of human rights abuses against him, how is policy toward Papua likely to change? Of the three candidates, neither of them has a particular policy on Papua. Uh, probably it's going to be the same policy uh, in terms of uh, focusing on development and probably more uh, other type of disinformation funding to keep the local police happy. That's pretty much the default. But in terms of security policy, I think probably potentially has the a uh, more hawkish kind of like uh, approach in Papua, given his history there. And from what I understand, uh, when I did my first research in Papua, they actually the OPM members are more, they would be glad to have Prabhu as president because it would help galvanize the separatist movement easier 
compared to dealing like someone like Jokowi, who's very good at charming top ones, even though his policies is not that progressive at all, as we see with Hongkong uh, and Papua. But for them, dealing with someone with Prabowo, it's easier. It's like the old level you know compared to Jokowi, like who's sending very confusing message, but in the end, it's actually he passed a lot of policies that uh, eroding the what political uh, political powers that the provincial or special autonomy law granted for the Papuans, which had been taken back during the Jokowi time as a president. So Prabowo, I think, will a bit clearer uh for the papuas like how to they need to deal with him and that is Deka Anwar, a researcher with the Institute for Policy Analysis of Conflict. And that brings us to the end of Pacific Beat. Let's look at our main story today. We spoke with nominee for the leadership governor, Alan Bird, about a notice for a motion of no confidence against PNG's Prime Minister, James Marape. I had no idea I would be a nominee for, for Prime Minister, to be honest with you, and I, I was quite unprepared. I rolled up to the meeting yesterday, uh, you know, not kind of dressed for the occasion, uh, but very casual. And that's East Sepik Province Governor Alan Bird. For more of these stories, head to abc.net.au forward slash Pacific. I'll be back same time, 6am PNG tomorrow, but remember our show is at 5pm PNG time this afternoon. This is Pacific Beat.